We, we will talk about four specific issues this afternoon, uh, or topics. The first topic is disclosure and the corporate dialogue with investors. Uh, and this, some of you may be aware of, and maybe uh, some of the rest of you are not, but once you uh, hear the, the issues that arise here, it is critical to the success of our economy and critical to the success of any market functioning because of the uh, information interplay between the various participants on both sides of the market. The second issue we'll look at is the corporate mission, the very notion about what we do uh, and how we make choices. Uh, Professor Jensen spoke to this issue uh, earlier in our luncheon, uh, for those of you that might have been there. And the third issue is executive pay, and uh, I, I think you have to be pretty well unaware of what's going on in the world if you're not aware of how contentious executive compensation has been and continues to be. Uh, most recently with respect to the distribution of TARP funds, if you've been aware of what was happening this summer in, in the, in the uh, government and in the economy. Uh, and finally, we'll touch on private equity finance. For those of you that are aware of what private equity is, it's the, the investment of funds that, that helps finance new startup businesses, entrepreneurial ventures, as well as the, the restructuring and remaking of older businesses. So private equity, as I describe it, is, tends to be the yeast in the system. It's what makes the system change and, and, and evolve. So with that said, let me introduce each of our panel members. I'll do this briefly uh, since their bios are very lengthy and, and would take far too much time to read. Let me uh, uh, introduce, first of all, Professor Mike Jensen, who is immediately to my left, two seats over. Mike, raise your hand. Uh, uh, Mike is Professor Emeritus from Harvard University. Uh, he uh, has also served at the Monitor Company as, an, as managing director and an a senior advisor. He was the founding editor of the Journal of Financial Economics, which is one of the top three finance, scholarly finance journals uh, that we have in this country, and he founded that at a very young age uh, many years ago. Uh, not too many years ago, though. Uh, then, in addition to that, the mo more recently, and for those of you that look a lot younger than we do out there, you're more familiar with online publishing. Well, if you ever look up a scholarly paper, chances are you're going to look it up in the Social Science Research Network. Mike is the founder of that network, and he continues to serve and work with that, that group. Uh, he's received about every honor that an academic scholar could receive save one. And we were hoping he would receive it before he arrived today, uh, this fall, but maybe next year. He's to, it's, uh, I'm speaking of the Nobel Prize for Economics. He is a, a perpetual. We're all shocked that he hasn't received it yet, but we're trying to do our best to make sure it happens soon. It's certainly well deserved. Uh, that I tend to be spending more time than I should probably here, but let me mention the next person to immediately to Mike's left is Mr. Ron Naples. Uh, Ron is currently the chairman of the Pennsylvania Stimulus Oversight Commission and the chief accountability officer for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He was appointed to that position by Governor Rundell in April of 2009. Uh, prior to uh, going into public service life, this second time, I believe he's been there before, uh, Mike, uh, excuse me, Ron was uh, the chief executive officer of the Quaker Chemical Corporation as well as chairman of the board. And prior to that, he was chair, uh, the CEO for Hunt Manufacturing. So he has extensive work experience. Uh, before joining Hunt, Mr. Naples was the executive director of a presidential task force on energy problems. 
He's a former White House fellow. He served in the Ford administration as an assistant to the counselor, to the president for economic affairs, and as a special assistant to the head of the Federal Energy Administration. He attended West Point, and I learned over lunch, played both football and baseball there at West Point. Uh, and ran track. Uh, he did just about <laughs> everything one could do. He's also a decorated uh, veteran of the Vietnam War. Um, and finally, the thing that impressed me most, I think, out of reading everything was the fact that he not only managed to raise three children, which is more than I've managed to pull off, but he also has had in his home 15 foster children, and that was very impressive. Uh, Trevor Harris is immediately to my left is uh, a former, is currently a faculty member at Columbia University. He went to Columbia in 1983. He was the, uh, had a professorship there, was director of the Chazen Institute of International Business, chair of the accounting department, then went to Morgan Stanley where until July 2008 he was a managing director and head of global valuation and accounting team. Trevor also has received a number of awards for his teaching, and he serves as the director of Columbia's Center for Excellence in Accounting and Security Analysis. How many of you in this room are accountants? Okay, good. You're here to hear Trevor, I think. Uh, in addition, Trevor has been involved in public service at the very highest levels. He has been a member on the Standards Advisory Council to the International Accounting Standards Board. Uh, the Users Advisory Committee to the Financial Accounting Standard Board, and the International Capital Markets Advisory Committee uh, at the New York Stock Exchange. And last but not least, my friend and colleague Don Chu, the end of the row down there. Uh, Don is Editor-in-Chief for Morgan Stanley and is the founding editor of the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance. This is his third visit to Baylor. He likes it here. He keeps coming back, so we're happy to say that. Uh, Don has published more than 10 books in corporate finance, including The New Corporate Finance, Where Theory Meets Practice, with Joel Stern and The Revolution of Corporate Finance. And in addition to that, Don also, uh, to his many talents, Don holds a PhD in English, as well as an MBA from the University of Rochester. So that's our group. And with that, I'm going to ask Don to kick off our discussion for the afternoon of our four topics. First, I want to say how delighted I am to be here. This is my third trip, and it keeps getting better every time. Uh, this last trip, I came a day early, so I was treated to a tour of the whole area that included, started with a trip to John Martin's farm, finally farmed, 70 acres, donkeys, cows. The second leg was a visit to the uh, Armstrong Browning Library. I got a tour from Avery Sharp, who's the head librarian there. And that is a, if you have not seen that building, you must see it before you leave Baylor. It is really an extraordinary collection of Robert Browning's works, and it's an Italian palace that will rival anything you can see in, 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 uh, in Florence or, or Venice. It's very impressive. Uh, my third, the third leg of my trip was a luncheon with Diana Vitanza, the, of the chairman of the English department, and I met several of her colleagues. And the fourth leg was a uh, visit to the Branch Davidian compound, uh, <laughs> accompanied by Bob Darden, who's written a book called The Madness of Waco. And, and that was a very, very impressive and, and, and sobering experience. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm really ha very happy to be here. And, and, uh, and, and now, as for today's panel, um, I want to start by asking Mike Jensen to uh, apply his concept of integrity to the, uh, the corporate dialogue between investors and companies. So that is, managers of companies need to tell their investors what's going on and how they're doing. And it strikes me that Mike's concepts of integrity can be applied to this discussion. And, and Mike has already told companies that they should just say no to Wall Street. They should not 
give earnings guidance, but find other ways to communicate with our investors. So I'd like to ask Mike to elaborate on what he has said about the dialogue between investors and managers. Thank you, Don. Um, I guess to start out with, I think that whole situation involving the relationship between corporate management and the capital markets is uh, more than a bit of a disaster. What has evolved over time is a game between corporate managers and, in, and analysts that, is, that ends up being a game that nobody can win and destroys vast amount of value. So what am I talking about about this game? It's a game when, for, for reasons I don't fully understand from history, managers have got themselves into the position of doing the substantial part of the analyst's job for them. I think they probably started it out thinking that they could benefit from it. What I mean by that is by having management make projections of what earnings and cash flows are going to be. And before Regulation FD, they would make those projections in private, even going so far as auditing the Excel spreadsheets of some or all of the analysts who were covering them. Now, that is clearly out of integrity. You're giving private information that properly belongs to the equity bondholders of the firm to privileged few so that they can make money by acting on it at the expense of others. That was made illegal by Regulation FD. There's a whole set of language around this corrupt game that's evolved that makes it sound okay. It's called managing earnings or smoothing earnings or meeting or beating the market's estimates. And there's out-of-integrity behavior on both sides of the fence here, both on the part of the analysts who are trying to manipulate managers and managers who are trying to manipulate analysts and thereby somehow get a leg up in getting the equity value of their firms increased or at least not decreased. A couple of years ago, there were some major scholars that um, did a survey of a very large number of chief financial officers about their policies that they followed in managing the relationship with the capital markets. I don't have the numbers in front of me because I didn't think I was going to be called on to give testimony. <laughs> but my recollection, subject to confirmation, is something on the order of 71% of the surveyed managers, and many of those, it was face-to-face -face or over the telephone, not anonymous, were perfectly willing to say yes to the question is whether they would change real operating decisions so as to meet analyst expectations, even if it cost them something in terms of real value. 
Mike, I think the number was 80%, and I think the question was phrased as, would you be willing to cut R&D or make some other investment cutback in order to achieve an, an earnings target, which is in some ways well, it was more disturbing? Yeah, it was worded in a way in which it was specifically specified that it was going to destroy value. Small, but it was going to destroy value. And as Don said, the number is 80%. Now, that's shocking. Shocking not only that they would do it, but they would admit to it. The cost of this, so let me say, I define lying in this business on the part of managers. Is any time a manager is changing real operating decisions in order to manipulate the earnings that are reported to the market, changing the real operating decisions that would maximize the value of the firm. I define those situations as, uh, as lying on the part of the managers. We're very polite. You can't get a journal article published that calls this lying. You could if I were still running the Journal of Financial Economics, but <laughs> and what I'd like and it and I'd like to point out that language is very powerful. Before I got to be known as an outspoken jerk, I got invited to serve on a couple of boards. And I sat in a boardroom and watched people talk about managing earnings, manipulating earnings. And these were perfectly honest people. When if the language they had to talk about it was, how much are we going to lie to the market this quarter, those discussions would not have occurred. But there's a sort of an understanding that we don't call a spade a spade in this end of the world. The cost is in the trillions of dollars. I don't think anybody's ever put together a real estimate of the cost. That was what lay behind that article that Joe Fuller and I wrote that was entitled, appeared in your journal, didn't it? Right. Uh, yeah. Just say, say, no, just to say no to Wall Street. Management should provide information to the markets on what the strategy is, what the operating performance is, the analyst's job is to take all that information and figure out what earnings and value is. And when the management gets involved in doing that part of their job, they inevitably get involved in manipulating, and the manipulation goes on on the other side, too. If we had time, I could easily spend an hour and a half giving you the data. There's massive amounts of data. And it extends beyond just the kind of thing I'm talking about here, just so you get an idea of how corrupt this system is. There's a major organization, Thompson ISI, that produces data on analysts' estimates of earnings and ratings of the performance of stocks. It's generally used by academics and others out in the world, but academics in particular to evaluate the performance of analysts. After the global settlement, remind me guys what it was called, uh, when every major investment bank 
in existence in this country ended up paying, I don't know, two or three billion dollars in total because they were lying about earnings and manipulating things. What happened was Thompson ISI let those brokerage firms, and every single one of them did it, go into the database and change the ratings ex post to make themselves look better. And Thompson never announced to anybody that they allowed this to happen. In fact, claimed that it was a software error, which it clearly wasn't. And the two young scholars who found out about it and inquired about it were threatened with lawsuits. That article is now published in the Journal of Finance. Anybody wants to get an idea of how corrupt this system is, go read it. It calls into question a whole mountain of research that's occurred since that period of time. And to this day, Thompson ISI, to my knowledge, has not yet notified their clients that are using those databases of the inaccuracies and the manipulation that was in it. It's not a good picture out there. And I know I probably offended some of my panel, fellow <laughs> panelists here, but well, I'll let's, stop there. Uh, Ron, you've also been on record. I think you, you do not practice earnings guidance. Is that correct? We do not. And can you explain why you don't do that and how you might try to compensate for that fact? Or well, I can talk about that uh, because we do feel strongly about it. And I also have some reaction to some of the things Mike was talking about because I've been for a long time on the other side of this question about, so what do you do? I've been, a member, I've been a member of two management teams, two public companies as CEO, trying to deal with these issues. And I think it's uh, – no one is ever going to argue the point that you should lie, cheat, and steal. So let's develop that as, a, as the initial premise, okay? Um, but there is there, – there's a little more complexity to some of these issues than I think came through in some of Mike's remarks. So right. I'd like to kind of circle back on some of this. Right. Um, but on the question of what was your question, Don? Why don't you practice earnings guidance? No, because it's no win. You're, you're, there's only downside to doing earnings guidance. Uh, you're going to be wrong. And when you are wrong, you pay a high price. So why put yourself in a position where you know you're going to lose sooner or later? Uh, the real question that you're, what you're trying to achieve with this is some market sense of who you are and what you're capable of achieving and some predictability that investors can count on. But there are ways to do that without practicing earnings guidance. Uh, and I'd like to separate the issue of earnings guidance from the issue of earnings management. Because I think earnings management is a loaded expression. Uh, you even use the word manipulation. Uh, you all know you're, stu you're studying business or you're studying accounting that there's no such thing as a single profit number. There's no such thing as the number, as the true number. Management teams are making decisions every day, and there's estimates every day, and judgments every day about what to do, what not to do, how to accrue something, how not to accrue something, uh, what time frame something is being evaluated over, evaluated over, all, all pension discount rates, pension plan discount rates, all kinds of things that combine, any one of which could change your earnings dramatically. So there's no single magical number that you can come up with that says, if it's not this number, you're lying or you're manipulating. And every judge, I guess in some sense, every judgment a management team makes along the way could be considered manipulation because you know it's going to have a, uh, an effect. 
You don't do this without knowing what the impact is. But you're trying to make all of these myriad judgments uh, on a good faith basis, trying to do the right thing for the business at the right time. Uh, even the question of that I was not part of the survey that Mike referred to about would you be willing to destroy value to, to meet an earnings target. I mean, the first thing is we don't set earnings targets, so we won't destroy value to get it. But more to the point is you can call this value destroying, but you can also look at it as another judgment. There's no way that I, know, I can know when I make a decision to do X, Y, or Z, whether it be R&D or whether it be advertising or whatever, that that's inevitably going to give me a positive result. So even the conclusion not to do some R&D is not necessarily a negative. And the real question on these kinds of things is time horizon. What is the time horizon over which you're trying to evaluate these things? So could a management team be confronted with a situation that says, again, put aside the earnings guidance because I don't believe that's a good idea. But it could, could it be faced with a decision quarter to quarter or six-month period to six-month period? Should we make this particular R&D decision now or should we make it three months from now or six months from now? Yeah, management teams are faced with those kinds of questions. And you could conclude that their decision to do it later, uh, later rather than sooner is manipulating. But it could also be sound, sound reasons for it. And my point is not to defend a decision one way or another. My point is only to make, the, to make the point that there are a myriad of judgments and a myriad of estimates and a myriad of actions that all go into an earnings result. And, any action, and many actions by a management team can affect that result. And uh, I think it's, it, it goes too far to call them manipulation because they're judgments that teams are trying to make along the way. Now, if the judgments are made for evil reasons, then, then we get to the point of manipulation. So, and you can't always know what's in someone's mind. I wouldn't presume to try to guess what's in someone's mind. So is, is Mike right about this? Or there's kind of a pernicious game out there? Yes, I believe that's correct. Uh, the kinds of uh, example he just uh, articulated at the end of his uh, comments is that's obviously not supportable in any way. Uh, but is the question of, and I'm going to go to managing earnings for a moment, managing earnings, is that quite so clear cut? And the reason why I'd, I'd like to separate um, earnings guidance from managing earnings is because I think earnings guidance is a bad idea for reasons I've already expressed. And you can agree with or disagree with that. But I think companies should stay away from it. But the question of earnings management is not linked only to earnings guidance, in my view. It's linked to the kind of message a company wants to send about its uh, company and a manager want to send about the business, what it's capable of achieving, and about the the effectiveness of a management team. And you will have to make, a management team will have to make judgments along the way about doing or not doing certain things and when they're to be done. And we'll have to make judgments along the way about what time horizon uh, is it over which they want to be judged. Um, so it is in the interest of a management team, I believe, to present a picture of itself, of, of the company, to the public that gives the company a good sense of what this company is about. That's not only about earnings, that's about a whole bunch of things, strategies and mission and what you hope to achieve as a company. And you want to make sure you have that conversation, not just the earnings conversation. But the, um, you also want to send to the market that you have a management team that's capable of, of, um, of producing, uh, of thinking long term, thinking both short term and long term, finding the right balance. And if you got that team doing that, you should be able to have some consistent stream of earnings in the short term and in, in the long term be able to achieve a certain long term result. So you do want to make sure that you're managing what you're doing, what you spend, when you spend it, on what you spend it, so that you get an overall result. And I, if that's called managing earnings, then I think we've kind of uh, gone astray here a little, because corporations are always in the business of deciding what to do when. And I don't think of that as managing earnings. I think of that about as making the right judgment to do something at the right time.
Okay. Trevor, do you want to comment on that? On the I have so many comments, I'm trying to think of how to order them. But um, I need to put in perspective a little bit that uh, as an analyst and running a team on valuation and accounting, working with the analysts, um, there is, I have argued both within the analyst community but also for companies, earnings guidance is ridiculous. I actually would argue that there is no analyst or no company or company manager that could predict a quarterly earnings at any point in time unless they are a ridiculously simple company. So the reality is it's a fool's game to even be trying to do this. The problem is that there is a system which has been inculcated over time that lends itself to this. And, and part of what Mike didn't sort of allude to is it was created, I believe, in part because we all believe, we see today how fast and easy communication is and the dissemination of information. But actually there was no way to convey that information in a useful way to a big market community uh, even a decade ago in the same form. So actually the analysts were often an intermediary of information into the marketplace and not, in most cases, for trading on your own account. I'm not saying that there weren't bad things that happened. Absolutely, there were. But that's, this was part of the whole communication in the capital markets and how they were working. And it leads to some very unfortunate and bad unintended consequences sometimes. I also want to just mention that what Ron alluded to is the, the reason in many times why the market reacts to missing earnings by a penny is because it's not a signal about that earnings number. It's a signal because management is giving guidance that they don't know what's going on in their own company. And so it, it speaks to what Ron was saying. You're at, you've got to communicate with the market because you're trying to reduce the uncertainty that's out there because that uncertainty will lead to significant uh, loss of wealth actually for everybody, for all sorts of participants. So there are multiple sort of paths that, that all this is going down. But I need to say something about the earnings side. See, the problem is, in many ways, we're asking accounting numbers to do something they cannot do. And I find it uh, actually quite offensive and, and troubling that in finance, and unfortunately even in many accounting faculty, talk about cash flow as if it's a solution to any problem. Cash flow, if anybody's going to manage their business purely on a cash basis, it will be a disaster. And Ron knows that right now because we were talking yesterday about how many bridges are, in, are basically, um, what was the term that you used, I think, uh, subject to lack of safety, let's just say, in the state of Pennsylvania, never mind you know, what we saw in, in Minneapolis uh, quite recently. Why does that occur? Why do we have all these deficit problems in a lot of local governments? Because governments work on a cash-based accounting system. So if you don't want to think about depreciation as a cost of actually, you need to maintain these bridges, you just defer maintenance until it collapses. And it's, that's a cash-based accounting system. So the notion of managing earnings and smoothing earnings, accruals by definition are smoothing of earnings. Okay, that is a smoothing concept, otherwise it wouldn't exist. So that's another piece to just put in this puzzle. There are lots of decisions that are made about how to manage your business and how to convey that information to the market. But, but perhaps the, the, the most important is the way accounting regulation has been written and taught 
is makes it almost impossible currently to understand how a company really operates. So, and, and, and especially to make a forecast. So I don't actually believe people know how to forecast revenue. But even if they do forecast revenue, and I'm, just, I'm talking about one period out, two period out, because you re really need to understand what drives quantity, what drives price, and if you're in an international situation, how exchange rates move, and how those all interact. And very few companies give that kind of disclosure. But even if you get it, what do we have as the way most companies report? Cost of goods sold and SG&A. Cost of goods sold consists of labor, capacity, materials, and various other factors. We don't get any of that information in the United States for 99% of the companies. And ironically, when continental European companies used to give this, we thought that they were playing games. SG&A. Selling general administration. How many businesses manage their marketing and distribution the way they manage their administration? If any of those companies are doing it, they should not be in business. So the problem is we've created, again, a whole system, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge system, both within corporations and outside, that completely lack in transparency, that facilitate this prediction of earnings cash flow, whichever measure you want to, you want to use. And so the, the problem that we're addressing here is people are trying to deal with something that is at its very core systemic, and it may lead to some of these lack of integrity issues and others. So I'm, I'm going to say one more thing, and then I'm going to keep quiet, because I've got to see if I can also get on a plane, is that Mike talked about the Thompson um, earnings forecasts. So one of the things I did at, at Morgan Stanley was create a system called Modelware, where we defined how to um, analyze companies and put metrics together. And we defined the metrics so that they were closer to the economics of the business. One of the problems we had was that the earnings that they were required to provide, and you can ask whether they should or not, but they're required to provide the earnings forecast. If you wanted to get it into the IBIS, or what became First Call and eventually the Thompson system, if you wanted to get it included, you had to adjust your measure to the way they wanted you to do it. Otherwise, you were excluded. So you could not actually provide a more meaningful measure if you wanted to be included in the system. And the system was often the way that was used to disseminate to a whole client base. So again, it's very easy to point fingers at one group or another. It's something that is totally systematic. And it's embedded on all different sides, including it's from the regulation all the way down. And I do not believe that most corporations, even internally, have transparency into how they actually make money. And so the problem goes much, much deeper than what we've been talking about. Did you want to comment on that, Ron? Or, or, uh, um, there is a study of, uh, going back to this explanation of how we arrived at earnings as, as the, the single measure of performance, uh, Warren Buffett likes to say that uh, companies get the investors they deserve. Uh, Warren Buffett has never offered earnings guidance and says he will never do it. And, and as a result, he gets long-term dedicated holders. And uh, there is a, there's a study of, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania that attempted to 
distinguish between different kinds of investors, and based on two variables, I think it was the length of holdings and the, the amount of diversification in the portfolio, he, he, he segregated all investors into three categories. There were transients or momentum investors, and that was about 60% of, of all U.S. institutional investors. 30% uh, were dedicated or quasi-indexers, rather, the people that basically took small positions but that were buy-and-holders but well-diversified. And there were a 10% class called dedicated holders. They held very large positions for very long periods of time in just a handful of stocks. And what the study then showed, first of all, is that companies that tend to offer earnings guidance and use forward-looking measures of performance attract momentum investors, transients. So, and companies that don't offer that kind of guidance attract long-term holders. And the second interesting finding he found was that those companies that, that have lots of transient or momentum investors said they were much, they were much more likely to cut R&D when they were approaching a quarterly earnings target. They were cutting R&D just so they could make that quarterly target. So this, this shows that, one, it suggests that companies may have the ability to attract different kinds of investors and that these, the choice of the investor base can in turn affect value by, by affecting managerial decision making, by affecting the confidence with which managers invest for the long haul. So uh, tr uh, we just lost Trevor, huh? <laughs> he's, he's negotiating. Oh, okay. He's fighting the airline fight. Can you, can you step in on this one, Ron? Or, uh? Well, um, I think it is true that how you present yourself to the marketplace has a lot to do with the kind of investors that you end up getting. And I guess it's true in most things in life. When you're out looking, all of you are sooner or later going to be out there looking for a job, and how you present yourself looking for a job is going to have a lot to do with the kind of job you end up getting. And I think the same thing is true in, in, in any selling effort and at the end of the day, a company is selling itself. What it's doing vis-a-vis -vis investors is selling itself. So you can, you can sell yourself as a, as a high-flying company with forward-looking earnings and big markets that you're sailing into and that you expect to do X, Y, and Z, or you can sell yourself as a different kind of company, maybe in more stable markets. Of course, it all depends on what you actually are. The little, that element of truth and fact has to play into this game somewhere. It's not just a matter of how you market yourself, but you build off of what you are and market yourself in the way that you think uh, is most constructive for people to perceive you as a worthwhile investment. Because after all, what you're asking people to do is bet their dollars on what you're doing. That's a pretty big deal. And people like to think that you have their interests in mind as well as their interests, as well as your own interests in mind. Because, and with some luck, those two will be uh, consistent. Uh, so there are things a company can do to attract uh, a certain kinds of investors. It depends who, to whom one presents about his business, to what investors one goes to sell, where does one present. Those are, that's an objective thing one can do. Uh, it may even go down to, it may even have a relationship to what kind of dividend policy you want to uh, engage in in the company. It may go to, um, I mean, in fact, in our company, and I, and I should I should halt here for a moment just to clarify. I am, I am no longer chief executive of this company. I stepped down about uh, about a year ago, I guess. So when I say our or my or whatever, I'm engaging in some, I hope not dishonest, but just kind of reflective behavior. So there is a new chief, chief executive there who's doing a fine job, and he may change all of this tomorrow as far as I know, but I don't think he has. Uh, one of the things our company did a long time ago, before my time, as chief executive, uh, put a uh, two classes of shareholders in place. We said a shareholder that had a share over three years could have a certain number of votes versus shareholders with less than three years holding period have a lower number of votes. Um, and I think there's, there's good and bad to that. I'm not representing that as, as, a, as a single minded 
tremendous solution. But it did have the effect of attracting shareholders who were a little more long-term oriented than, than a trader would typically be. Um, was, was that this, your innovation, or was that something you No, that existed when I got there. That was not my innovation. Um, and, of course, there was a little grief around that in terms of uh, listing on the New York Stock Exchange, because there was, there was the one share, one vote kind of premise. And, uh, but then, nevertheless, the Stock Exchange did list us, uh, and we've been on the New York Stock Exchange for a long time. So I, I do think that uh, how a company presents itself is certainly uh, will have an effect on the kind of investors it gets. And, and I don't think that really should be all that much news because we see that in marketing ourselves and marketing businesses all the time. And what you're doing when you're, when you're selling to investors is marketing your business. So, sorry about that, but l let me pick up on, on that point and then I'll get to, I think, what Don was alluding to, is um, one of the arguments we've made to several corporate clients is you should be thinking about your financial information essentially like you do every other product and you should be marketing it that way. And there are many uh, investors who are constrained in terms of how they can invest, how long they can invest for, and they are in many cases subject to um, short-term withdrawals which actually influence how they behave. So they can't always take a long-term investment view because they're actually subject to short-term performance. And, and I, I must say that both in the uh, analysts, the, the previous conversation we had about earnings management and, and so on, and, and the analyst earnings expectations, a big part of this problem is actually the financial press. We have soundbite requirements for information played up significantly by the CNBCs of the world. So if you want to blame one other group for a lot of what's going on, point to that financial press. People are playing with soundbites to deal with very complex situations. So one of the, the arguments that we've made to corporations is why are you actually giving any information to the sell side? The investors you should be talking to are the buy side i.e. the investors, and you should be focused on those that are actually there to stay with you as the company if that's what you're interested in. Now, we had a situation with a particular client where many companies use their, um, they have vendor financing situations, so they'll have a captive finance subsidiary that helps uh, provide funding for their products. And um, some companies have separated that very clearly, and others it's sort of blended. And we had a corporate client where uh, they had new management. They'd be known as uh, very aggressive in terms of their disclosure informa disclosed information and on accused of earnings management and other things. And so we did a whole analysis for them. But one of the conclusions we came to was that they should isolate their um, captive finance subsidiary because it looked like they were cross-subsidizing their businesses. And they s argued very vociferously they were not. I said, well, there's no way to know that as an outsider. So the CFO said to the head of capital markets and myself, he said, um, but no investors ever asked us that question. And our response was, because the investors who focus on that stay away from you. So to the CFO's credit, uh, he listened to us. They did that. And he came back afterwards and he said it made a significant difference. He believed, and there's, he wouldn't probably be able to stand it up to our kind of empirical analysis, but he believed it increased his stock price uh, by about 10% as a result of that. 
and partly because they were being perceived as being much more transparent, and partly because they attracted a different group of investors. And just to sort of round that out, one of my uh, buy-side clients at the time uh, sent me an email and he said, you know, this company has now become boring because he used to have a competition to see who could find the most earnings quality problems, and now they'd sort of cleaned all that up. So what he'd done was that actually transformed their whole perception about how they were managing all this information to the street along the lines of what Ron was sort of alluding to. Uh, one of the best examples I can think of of uh, ch changing a company's investor base is a case study that Mike did years ago on sealed air, where a company was, it was a cash cow, and uh, it was slow growth, maturing, but not performing very well. And they decided to do a massive leverage recapitalization where they paid out more than the total value of the firm in a debt instrument. And overnight, then they cut the dividend, of course. And the, the investor base changed completely. Anyone who was a widows and orphans had to sell the stock because it was no longer paying dividends. And the new investors were Tiger Management and a, and a group of hedge funds. So suddenly, this company was able to operate with 90% leverage and do a complete transformation of strategy with the help, with the aid of a different investor base that was basically able to perceive the value of what they were doing. So it's, it's an attempt. But maybe we should move to uh, the uh, corporate objective function thing. now. Sure. And, and uh, Mike, do you want to start by elaborating again on what you were saying during your talk when you were your enlightened value maximization, uh, how your view may have – is the value is – the, is the purpose of the company still to – maximize value in your view and, and then and, and what what else can you say about it in terms of we have we have to be very careful of the language we use because it has a big impact on how people behave um, and it's not easy and I've gotten some insights in the last few months or a year and I'm not completely satisfied with where I am, but what, where I, what I argue is we don't want to give up using value or value creation as the scorecard on which we tell whether we're succeeding or failing. Now, the downside of doing that is that, and I believe this has happened, and I may have even been the cause of some managers thinking that their job was to simply maximize the value of the equity, actually maximize the total value of the firm, and that that was somehow going to, viewing their job that way was somehow going to bring about success. I think that's a terrible way to think about your company. As I said earlier today, both at the individual level and at the company level, if you're going to be successful, now I'm going to talk about the company, you as a company have got to be committed to something that's bigger than the company. I use the example of Bill George at lunch, didn't draw it out in this dimension, but Bill went through some crucible experiences, fiancé that died, mother died, some frustrations in Honeywell. So he left a much more important position, a much more powerful position, 
after going through this set of crucible experiences and join Medtronics. If you read his book, in particular chapter two, you'll see a lot about what went on in this man's life. He took Medtronics from a company that was a $1 billion company in 13 years to a $20 billion company. He's now a leadership professor at the Harvard Business School. I believe that that happened to no small part because of Bill's experiences and his frustrations at Honeywell and he was looking for something bigger than just his reputation in making money. And what I believe is true, when he went to Medtronics, he went there with a mission that was bigger than himself and bigger than the company. It was to supply medical devices to people around the world that made their lives better. Now, if you do that right, you can make a lot of money. But there's a huge difference between seeing that as what you're committed to and seeing yourself as committed to raising the price of the stock and the value of the company. If you do, if you're committed properly, that other stuff will result. And it's well to have a scorecard to tell whether you're succeeding or failing. If you try and play a football game or a baseball game by keeping your eye on the scoreboard, you're going to lose. You've got to be out there on the field blocking and tackling and all the strategy that's involved in getting something done. I don't have that completely well formulated, at least to my satisfaction, but it, I'm farther down the road than I was before, and I'm willing to say that those of us me included, finance professors that have argued and haven't fully fleshed out, that have argued that social welfare is maximized if all firms behave so as to maximize value with a couple of assumptions in the background, conditions, we don't need to go into that. And we never fully explained how you would get that done. So to put it in another way, if you take on the job of CEO as a top level manager, and you see your job as solely one of maximizing the value of the company, you will not maximize the value of the company. Okay. But let me you put it the fail. other way, Mike. What, what if every company says to itself, okay, we're not really doing very well in profits, uh, but we, we're doing a great job in our social mission. What are the consequences of that? And then I'll turn it over to Ron after. I just want you to focus on that one question. If companies say, okay, we have a balanced scorecard, our, our shareholders aren't doing so hot, but boy, we do a great job with our employees. We take care of our customers. What's the problem? What's wrong with that? Well, you're denying the scorecard. You're losing the ball game and denying it. You got two thirds, right? <laughs> two out of three. <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? What, that's, that's what I'm saying. You, you're destroying value. Okay. Yeah. That scorecard yeah. tells you you're failing. Yeah, but there's something wrong in the yeah, system. It's the horizon. You, well, you're measuring that over, they're doing fine with the customers and employees for a short period of time, but it's not sustainable. If there's any doubt of that, look at some of these auto companies yeah. that have just gone bankrupt. No, I'm right. agreeing with your premise. I'm just saying, what yeah, if it's every... It's horizon. Okay. You've got to deal... People don't factor in the horizon, and Ron alluded to that earlier. Yeah, I think the time horizon okay. is really important in almost all the, these kinds of discussions. Uh, and I think any successful business is going to find a way to, to achieve the short-term and long-term balance. I mean, the reality is 
Uh, everybody talks in American business talks about building a long-term record. But the other reality is that a long-term record is built one year at a time. There are a lot of companies out there who are no longer with us who talked about how good it was going to be three years from now. So you have to have the discipline of finding the right way to be long-term oriented, because that's what you're there for. But you also have to find the right way to deliver along the way. The long-term record built one year at a time. And I think the, the notion of the value maximization as the purpose of the firm is, um, I, I agree with, with a lot of what Mike just said in that, in that notion. The, um, the problem with it is that it goes, it drives it to profitability. Uh, again, the profitability question, is, is that the way a firm gets valued? And uh, I didn't say this earlier, but it was maybe more relevant earlier, but I remember in my first, uh, one of my first classes at business school, when I arrived at business school, I knew nothing about business, what a balance sheet was or is or what an income statement was. I knew some other stuff, but not that. Uh, and uh, in, early on in our, we called it financial control where I went to business school, not accounting. He expressed early on that profit is a figment of some accountant's imagination. Well, that was shocking to me. Uh, it's no longer shocking. But uh, so the reality is that this profitability thing, for all the reasons we talked about before, can be a pretty slippery concept. Or pretty, it's certainly not a precise, knowable uh, number based in ultimate truth. Uh, and f so when you build, when you think about uh, value maximization as the purpose of the firm, the, one of the problems is it takes you to profitability. And I think an important part of this is how does a firm talk about its profitability? In our company, and I'll call it our company because I'm still on the board there, although as I, as I said, I'm no longer CEO, we never talked about our purpose as profitability. For us, profitability was only the fuel, not our purpose. You can't build a great company without profitability, but you can't build a great company if all you're worried about is profitability. So, and self-talk in a firm is really important. You begin with, uh, uh, what is it, why are we here? Uh, and, and it's not simply a matter of maximizing value. It's a matter of, of, um, of trying to achieve something as a firm, as, as Mike called it, that's bigger than ourselves. Uh, but then you go to, so how do we do that? And achieving the resources do, to do it through profitability is obviously very important, but never the, the, never the purpose of what we were doing. We never looked at profitability as a purpose of what we were doing. We set values. We set, we didn't call it a vision. We called it a destination for where we wanted to head as a company, and that had a lot to do with who we would be and how we would serve our customers and why that would be good for our markets. Um, uh, and we, we based a lot of our measures of our success on how we achieved those goals, not simply what was our level of profitability. One of the problems is, just to finish that thought, and of course when a firm talks about how well it's doing, your, your quarterly press release, what do you go to? The first thing is, this was our quarterly profit. Right. So you can't escape that. Uh, but uh, you need to put it in the right context to be successful long term. But I think you all have to appreciate that Ron and his company are not uh, are a little bit outliers on the positive, on the good side. Not everybody operates, I think, quite the way that, that you're alluding to. And, and I think that part of the problem for that is actually in the corporate governance area, the boards. And Mike was alluding to the boards he sat on, where board members themselves are frequently either CEOs of other companies, and they're often asking well, why aren't you meeting these goals? What is the, why are you not performing as well as some other benchmark and so on? And that's often measured uh, sometimes in, in price performance and others. But I, I want to give you an example in terms of the credit crisis because I think it's, this time horizon problem is a real issue. Um, I know of at least one senior person who lost his job 
because he kept arguing that they should not be invest, this firm should not be investing in certain parts of the subprime mortgage market and others. And yet, for three or four, because he understood the risks that were being taken and didn't feel it was worth the franchise of the firm, betting the franchise of the firm on that. But that persisted for one year, two years, three years, four years. And of course, that's getting more and more risky as you're moving up that sort of curve. But at some point in time, he's not making the short-term decisions, even one-year decisions, that others have made and in some sense have taken advantage of. So part of the problem is there's a lot of pressure around you to actually meet certain expectations by all sorts of other people, including the board of directors. So uh, one, I'll give you one other interesting anecdote on that. We had an institutional investment client that got very excited by something called CFROI, which is a form of residual income valuation. And there's a whole, someone sold them a whole product on this. And so they, they made all their investment conclusions around this measure of intrinsic value. As good or bad as it is, it's a, good, it's a reasonable measure of intrinsic value. The problem was that prices will move around that for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with the valuation of the firm. And they were being measured by their investors on quarterly performance. So they were often underperforming on a short-term basis while they might have had the right long-term call from a value point of view or a value maximization point of view, from a re stock return point of view, it was working against them. And so they just saw these massive withdrawals from their investment pools, and so they had to change their behavior. So part of the problem is, it's all the whole system again, but if you have an incentive and people are, t are measuring you on quarterly performance, there's a natural predisposition to act along those directions. Ron, did, you, did your company ever say to itself, look, we have, the market is expecting certain cents per share. I know you don't do guidance, but we are going to flout the market's judgment. We're going we're gonna to invest in this project. We know it's the right thing to do. And then make sort of a public announcement saying, we have had an earnings shortfall, and the reason for that is we have decided to make a long-term investment. Did you ever try that? And, and if so, did, did the market react in any way? Or, uh... Well, um, we didn't, we, yes, the answer is yes, uh, but we didn't try it quite that way. Uh, we often made decisions that uh, were uh, harmful in the short term. I, I think any business, but I don't, I don't uh, particularly hold it up as a signal of heroism. I mean, any business to be successful has to think about the long term. I've already said that, so I'm just repeating myself. Uh, and when we, when we made choices that we thought were going to be difficult for the market to understand, because they weren't your kind of run-of-the-mill, let's go, let's charge straight ahead, uh, we, we then put in uh, efforts to explain that, which we did by talking about the business, and also in our annual, in our uh, quarterly uh, uh, analyst conferences, conferences, we would explain the impact of this strategic choice on the business. For instance, we, a few years ago, we invested in a, in a, in a business with uh, one of our products, if you will, was a different way to serve our, our uh, customers, particularly automotive customers. And we knew, we were convinced that this was the right thing to do for the long term. This was what our customers needed to have from us in order to make them more competitive. So we weren't looking at this just from what it's going to do for us, but we were looking at it for why would this be better for our customers. And I think any company, if it's going to be successful, has to do that also. Because you can't just serve your own needs, you're in business to serve the needs of others. Um, Did the market uh, seem to respond? Well, well, we knew that this would hurt us short term. 
Okay. Uh, but we felt it was so important strategically to do that. We said, okay, we'll take these slings and arrows, and we will go out and explain to the market what we're doing here. They can make their judgments about whether they think this is the right strategic thing to do. But we sold the strategic thing and talked about the financial consequence only as a secondary issue. And that when we also put a time horizon on in terms of when we thought we could get it done, when we would have it with the place where we wanted it to be. And when we were wrong on that, it was longer than we thought it was going to be, we went out and talked about that. And in the end, it's proved to be very successful for us. It was the right business decision. It, it would have, we would have, if we were driven only by profitability, we would have never done it. And today it's an important part of the company's business. Uh, yeah. So I guess the answer is uh, yes. But, but in my question to you, in that case, how long did the market take to get it? No, no, no. Uh, quickly. If you communicate this stuff properly and you have the credibility as a manager, it will be done. So I'll give you another very explicit anecdote. Okay, comment just well, a, before yeah, you go yeah, on with that. that. You just said an important thing, the credibility as a manager. Right, right. And, you know, again, we talked about this thing about managing earnings. Yeah, if you're, if you're simply manipulating earnings, that's a bad thing. But if you're managing your business so that you have a, a, a result over the long term that shows to your uh, your investors that you know what you're doing. It establishes your credibility and your reliability, and it gives you a base on which to talk about these other things. Exactly. So the, the managing earnings thing, while it sounds nefarious, also has to do with running your business well, exactly. getting a predictable result. Exactly. So, so, so here's a, another sort of interesting anecdote. There's a, a company that had been uh, motivating their managers to act, uh, to do growth, to, to generate growth. Okay, because growth is good, so to speak. Um, and it was generally revenue growth and to some extent earnings growth. The problem was that it, a lot of their business was actually business process outsourcing. So they were actually buying a lot of other people's assets in order to do that. And they suddenly got conviction about sort of long-term return on invested capital after the cost of equity as a way to do it. So there was a huge contract that they could have won but it was actually with a particular government. And the, the government was trying to get them to take over the assets. And they said, you can borrow and fund these assets more efficiently than we can. It's not good economics to make this decision. Anyway, what actually ended up happening was they lost the contract on this basis. And their market price went up significantly because the market had perceived this was a management that was managing for growth but not for value maximization. And once the, they signaled to the market that they were willing to make that right decision, their price went up dramatically and it just changed. So if you, if you, it's, it's really what Ron was talking about. It's about making sure you convey to the market how you're managing the business in the right way. And on that point, uh, uh, Trevor, one of the things we talked about related to this business, it, it was a kind of business where you have to establish contracts with the companies that are long term. Uh, we talked about the decision-making um, mechanism that we put in place to pursue the business. And what it was all based around was economic value added by specific contract, which was different from the way we had managed other businesses in the past. So we could talk about what we felt was a very uh, straightforward and credible way to look at not just is this adding to the top line, but in the end is it going to add value. Right. And I think that, that helped us to sell a story. No, I shouldn't say sell, to convey a story that turned out to be right. So, so I'm sensitive. We've got a lot of accounting students here. So I want to I give them an anecdote, and all of us an anecdote, or not an anecdote, a situation, so that you can understand why I think the accounting is a part of this problem and why we have to be careful how we make these judgments. So if you look at what's happened in, in the mark-to-market world or for value world, there's a big debate now about how much that's been part of this crisis. 
And so what the accounting regulators have done, and I'm sure many of you know this, is come up with what they call level one, level two, level three valuations. Because if you've got um, securities, you have to fair value them and mark them to market, even for industrial corporations today, depending whether it goes in earnings or it goes into other comprehensive income. So the question, if, if you think about it, the natural predisposition that people have if it's in level one, that means there's a market price out there for that instrument. So an equity in Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley has a stock price in a very active market. The problem is that that price at a given point in time, on a given day, which happens to be the quarter end or the year end, may not represent value in any way whatsoever. It's got to do with that price at a specific point in time, which can be driven by all sorts of supply-demand issues in the marketplace. The level three, which is where you've actually done a valuation, and assuming there's integrity in those valuations, that's actually where you have the best information about the underlying securities, again, assuming it's been done properly. And moreover, for a financial institution, the real value you bring is to provide prices or risk intermediation in those areas where there's not liquid markets. So because of the way we have been misled in some cases to presume that every manager is out to, to take advantage of everything only for themselves and not create value for their stakeholders rather than just their shareholders, we have this presumption that somehow there's an observable price and everything's efficient and that's going to be the best information. So, so what I'm conveying is that, or trying to get across, is that sometimes we look with the long, wrong lens at the information we're being provided and that itself induces some unfortunate behavior. And the accounting systems have not dealt with that appropriately because we try to summarize very complex, very uncertain futures into one number or two numbers. Trevor, you've just taken our discussion backwards into part one. And, uh, <laughs> no, I'm so trying to link them together, actually. <laughs> okay. uh, do you have any more? Unless we have other comments about the, the corporate value function, uh, let's, let's move on to executive pay. Uh, Mike Jensen is a very famous and controversial proponent of, of uh, uh, large equity holdings for managers. So famous, in fact, that there was an article in the New Yorker about, I don't know, five or six years ago that, that blamed Michael Jensen single-handedly for the, the excesses of CEO pay. And I find that to be an incredible accomplishment for any finance professor <laughs> to have an article in the New Yorker about him. And, and, at any rate, Mike, t tell us. I what thought you were going to say he was in favor of executive pay. Uh, <laughs> that's a position I can support. <laughs> well, he is. He's, well, your, your argument is that it's not the level that matters. It's, it's the pay for performance function and getting that right. So I won't, I'll stop putting words in your mouth. <laughs> well, my co-author, Kevin Murphy, and I started to write about this back in the 80s. Um, and we were looking at a situation at that time and Kevin is a genius at collecting the data, in which the CEOs of, and top managers of a very large fraction of the larger companies in America were being paid like bureaucrats. And their salary was much more a function of the total sales of the organization than it was of any real value creation. And I believe 
that that was played a major role in the conglomeration movement in which large organizations were put together with pieces that had no inherent relationship to each other, destroyed massive amounts of wealth. And that all, a very large fraction of that got unwound during the takeover boom of the 1980s that got started in the 70s and then the leverage buyout, private equity uh, moved movement that created, again, huge amounts of value. A large part of that, I believe, was due to the way top management was paid, which, as I said, tended to be a function of how large the organization was, basically as measured by sales. And you could see, especially those of you who are accountants or in finance, what a disastrous situation that would be. Uh, there were a number of people looking at this stuff, and Kevin and I wrote a paper, um, a long scholarly paper, and then a Harvard Business Review paper that showed with the data that the variability of CEO pay was actually substantially less than the variability of the rank and file wage payments. Now, that didn't make any sense at all. And there was very small holdings of equity, and options were uh, relatively unknown. I don't know whether we caused it, but we pointed out that this was a ridiculous way to pay people. And there are lots of reasons why it evolved that way, and it changed. Equity-based pay in the form of restricted stock, outright stock grants, and, and uh, stock options then became a more and more larger part of the executive pay package, tying the executives much more closely to the changes in the value of the company, not changes in the size of the company. And during that period of time, coupled with the takeover movement and the beginnings of the private equity leverage buyout movement, there were trillions of dollars worth of wealth created. And then it overshot the mark. And the kinds of options that were awarded were poorly constructed. And I'm in print a number of years ago saying, if I had my way, there would never be another standard executive stock option contract awarded. We would award them in a way that they only paid off if the company earned more than, more than its cost of capital over some period of time. I'm not going to go into the details of that discussion, but, and there has been a movement in that direction. Um, and um, a lot of value was created. Then, you, you know, the seeds of the solution to, the solutions to today's problems always contain the seeds of tomorrow's problems. And, you know, we're never going to find ourselves in a world in which there are no issues and problems. So we have vastly overshot the mark uh, in a number of ways. It's being corrected. CEO pay is declining for the first time substantially in a very long period of time. I happen to think that's a good thing. I'm not talking about the level of pay. And we're cutting back on some of the options 
in stock. Now, unfortunately, what's happening in the current market is stock options, which are a good way, if we did the right kind, to give management, to give them the proper incentives, are being replaced by restricted stock grants, which is an enormously expensive and inefficient way to do this job. And just give you a hint about how it works. So if I give you, and this is not an unheard of thing, um, a stock grant of 25 or $50 million, and you destroy half of the value of the company in the following year, you still walk away with $25, billion, $25 million. That's a stupid way to pay people. And nobody's paying much attention to that. It's related to the fact that CEOs are not stupid about the value-creating operation, operations in their companies, options in their companies. So when they see that the likelihood of creating a lot of value in the future is pretty low, they're going to encourage the board and the compensation committee to give them stock grants for exactly the reason I just said. And if you look at the data, that's what's happening. So are we better off than where we were back a long time ago? And the answer is unambiguously yes. I repeat what um, Don said. I think, I think a major part of the problem with executive compensation is that it taps into and what's in the background of the discussion is some of the least attractive characteristics of human beings. Jealousy and envy. It's never put on the table, but that's what's going on there. And if you look at it, and Kevin and I, when we get this book done, we'll show that there's a huge increase in the concerns and unpopularity and attacks on executive pay every time there's a downturn in the economy. One of the things that we're doing now is our policies are having a dramatic impact on the financial industry, all under the assertion that executive pay has encouraged unwise risk-taking. Now, let me say to start with, there was absolutely unwise risk-taking. Kevin and I have looked at the compensation policies at the top level, CEOs and the named partners in the investment banks, and I'm telling you, you cannot find the seeds of the financial crisis in those compensation plans. You cannot find it. But I was shocked because I hadn't looked at him carefully, and there are people here more knowledgeable about that than I am, and we haven't finished writing that chapter yet. But in the sample of banks, investment banks that we looked at, and, and I've not looked at the commercial banks, so I'm, I'm not talking about that for the moment, they carried over the compensation plans and the compensation structure that existed when they were private partnerships into the public forum almost whole. So the standard salary of major investment bankers, can't remember which one was which, but one was $400,000 a year, another one was $600,000 or $650,000 a year. This is in an industry where the market price for the CEO 
We're now talking about the named partners, the top 20 or 40 of them. It varies from firm to firm. When the expected compensation had to be in the range of 20 to 50 million dollars. So it's all on the come, so to speak. And very interesting about that was the policies are pretty uniform, that they can't take any much more than 20 percent of that in cash. And the 80 percent has to be taken in restricted equity. You don't get a chance to sell it until after you've retired, and even then, I'm told, there's some pretty substantial restrictions and you take a haircut. So if you look at it ex-ante, the managing partners, the named partners in these organizations had absolutely no incentive to put that junk on their balance sheets. Now, I don't know what's going on with compensation below that level. And the takeover of Bear Stearns and the bankruptcy of Lehman in the compensation structure. Now, I'm one person, coupled with Renee Stoltz and his co-author, who have documented a similar set of things, saying, wait, guys, before you go about destroying an important part of the financial industry in this country, and that's exactly what's going to happen for the companies that can't get out from under Ken Feinberg's hands. They're well on their way to destroying AIG, I believe. AIG cannot survive without top-rated talent to get themselves out of the mess they got themselves into. I'm told, I'm not, I don't have the specific knowledge about it, that most of the guys that got them into that situation have been fired. They're gone. Now Ken Feinberg and the Congress are determining the salaries of those who are left there. People are leaving these highly talented people are leaving these firms which are deeply troubled and they need them to, to work out these complicated systems without incurring massive losses and we're basically forcing them out the door. Greenberg is now forming a competitor to AIG which is not restricted by these compensation constraints and hiring some of the best talent from AIG and my guess he'll be successful. And the taxpayers are going to be left with enormous losses as a result of the policies that are being imposed by the Congress and Ken Feinberg. Now they're doing it for perfectly legitimate reasons. They're under enormous pressure to get these bankers who made a lot of money and caused this problem. And there's no room in that discussion for any subtlety about what actually happened. And when people tell you they know what happened, I suggest you take that with a grain of salt. Because I don't think anybody knows very clearly exactly what happened. And we won't for a significant period of time when we unfold exactly what took place. We have some conjectures, but that's very different than actually knowing why. And those people who are arguing that it, the crisis we're in was due to executive compensation at those places, they, they're ignorant and maybe malicious because out of jealousy they don't like the fact that they earn millions of dollars. I don't earn millions of dollars. Why should you? 
That's the least one of the least attractive characteristics of human beings. It breaks up families. It pits brother against brother. And all we're seeing is that kind of petty antagonism that creates nothing. Now it, operating at a national level, with people like Chris Dodd and Barney Frank, who played a major role in creating this by what they did with the Community Reinvestment Acts. And there's a whole story there that hasn't been told and, has, and never gets publicized in the New York Times. It has been told in some places. Those two men probably played a greater role in bringing this about than any other two men in the country. And that story will eventually get told. Right now, they're in the picture, making it worse, not better. Ron, you want to comment on that? Levels of, levels of CEO why should pay? I jump, why should or, I jump uh, into the middle of that? <laughs> <laughs> we can go that's back a, to the beginning. That's, that's a pretty compelling story that uh, Mike tells. But uh, I'd like to focus on the, uh, and I'm sure we all have feelings and reactions to not only, not only what Mike said, but also the, uh, what happened. Uh, because it was such a dramatic and unexpected event and it had such a dramatic impact on so many lives. But uh, let's leave that over here for a moment and let's just talk about executive compensation. Um, I think that my sense is, and again, I've been in this game for a long time. Uh, I first became a CEO back in 1980. So, and so I've seen a lot of change over the years in how CEO compensation and compensation generally gets handled. I've been an initiator of some of it, and I've been on the receiving end of some of it. And I think generally today boards are, are much more careful about and thoughtful about how they pay executives than they've ever been. Um, and I think that's a good result. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's, it's, recognizing, it's recognizing the complexity of what it is to deliver as a corporate executive. Because it's really not as simple as, as uh, simply performing every year. Uh, and a lot of times, um, and, and what's happening today is you'll see bonuses are much more carefully thought about in terms of how much risk does a job, how much influence does a job have in corporate results, and how much discretion does a job have to take risk. So you'll see compensation that's made up of three pieces. Not surprising, a salary, a, a, an annual bonus, and a long-term incentive. How that long-term incentive is crafted is, a, is an, an issue of some uh, debate because you can have the kind of issue that uh, Mike was talking about. Do you use options? Do you use restricted stock? And if you use restricted stock, do you just uh, is it uh, time-based or is it performance-based? And all those kind of questions have a, a real uh, Im impact on what kind of incentives are out there. But today, a typical CEO, I think you will find in a, an industrial company. I'm not going to talk about the financial companies. In an industrial company, won't, it's not at all unusual for the total compensation package to be fashioned in such a way that they, they have a target, there's a target number for that package, and that 25 to 30 to 25 percent to one third of that package is salary, another, another 25 percent is uh, annual bonus, and the remainder, maybe 50 percent, is long term bonus. So that you're, you're incented, I, don't, I know that's not really a word, but allow me to use it, uh, to do the to do the right thing for the company long term, not simply to, to maximize profits every year. Um, so uh, to the extent that uh, the compensation issue got out of hand, and I think part of it was exactly what you talked about, Mike, being more related to revenues than profitability, 
that I think boards have really stepped up to. And boards will continue to look at this harder, uh, particularly in terms of how the, how the uh, long-term awards are made. I think that's going to be an evolving circumstance for some time uh, for the kind of reasons Mike pointed out. Uh, and, and there are answers to these, to, to these kinds of questions that really tie management to performance. So I think that the end result is that boards are much more vigilant about compensation. Compensation committees today are much more independent than they ever were. Uh, because the, uh, they have to be made up of uh, directors who are 100% uh, outside, no insiders. CEO is not part of the committee. Uh, there's a more of an inclination for boards to act independently today uh, than there was in uh, the past. And there's both a good side and a downside to that. I mean, you all are familiar with Sarbanes-Oxley, and Sarbanes-Oxley really changed corporate behavior dramatically. Uh, I remember I observed some time ago that uh, uh, what eight years ago could have gotten done in a hallway conversation today requires two committee meetings, a consultant for half a million dollars, and a board meeting, and still a lot of wringing of hands that we do the right thing. <laughs> so it really has, there's been downside, and there's been a good side and a, and a, and a downside to the kind of thing that Sarbanes-Oxley imposed. The good side was it made, made us be more careful about certain things. The bad side was, in some instances, it was more form over function, form over substance. Um, but. Like most advances, that you take one step forward and half step back. Um, so I think the, for me, the net is that, again, not commenting on the financial world, because that's a whole different compensation structure. For industrial companies, the net is that there's much more recognition that uh, uh, the compensation of top executives have to, has to be a mix. And the way, one of the ways that we approach it is we look at it and say that the higher one is in the company, uh, the more one should be have compensation that's performance-related. And the higher one is in the company, the more of that compensation should be long-term performance-related rather than short-term performance-related. And we go through our whole company and, and slot everybody into that kind of uh, fit so that we are sure there's the right combination of, of, uh, of uh, right composition of, comp of compensation depending on the kind of job one is asked to do. Okay, can I interject something, Don? Let, let's touch on our last subject of private equity just briefly, and then maybe we'll have a couple of minutes to take a couple of questions from the audience if uh, anyone has any. Mike, a moment ago when we were talking about the, the corporate objective function, you, you spent a lot of time talking about having a higher purpose than, than simply what's, what's the scorecard. With the private equity guys, the ones that I've talked to, especially LBO guys, their purpose tends to be the scorecard. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Uh, several years ago, you, you wrote a piece on the eclipse of the public corporation. Uh, we still have public corporations, but we got a lot more private equity, too. So how is that all working out? Well, it worked out very well for quite a while. And um, for reasons that I don't fully understand, um, let me go back and say that the title of that paper, The Eclipse of the Public Corporation, was one that I didn't write. The editors of the Harvard Business <laughs> Review did. Uh, I liked the article, but I hate the title because uh, it didn't make any sense. But it was better than their other one <laughs> that I compromised on. Um, I and my colleagues at the business school wrote cases on a number of those organizations, this was in the earlier days, in the 80s. And we looked carefully at how they managed companies and what they did. 
those cases are still around. And it was truly amazing the changes that happened when people who had a combination, teams that had a combination of expertise that came from the capital market side, so they had an insights about valuation and how value was created. And you combine that with managerial talent, sometimes from the outside, sometimes from the inside, and you recapitalize these companies with a lot more debt and a lot less equity. You know, we got huge increases in productivity and value, and that was real service to society. Um, and uh, the gains were enormous. Then an interesting thing happened. It was now maybe two years ago. I got invited to give a, a talk. Some people say I was the father, at least the intellectual father of the private equity movement in that in that original article, and about the same time I testified before Congress that was threatening to shut them down, and they didn't, thank goodness. It was about two years ago that I was invited to give a talk to a bunch of private equity guys for the Harvard Business School in New York, a couple of hundred in the audience, and that talk, the slides of it are up on SSRN. And I said at that point that I, was, I had grave concerns about what was happening in the industry. There were going to be scandals. The model was being perverted by people who were in it for the money. They were basically corrupting the model, which worked, in order to get more money for themselves, violating the long-held tradition that all the equity holders got paid in proportion. Suddenly there were buyout specialists getting special dividends, transactions fees that were huge. I have no problem, as I said that night, with you raising your fees. If the market's willing to pay that, that's fine. But don't destroy the model. And the most ludicrous thing I saw at that time, there was the beginning of conversations. I think Fortress had already gone public. And I said that night that the notion of a publicly held private equity firm is not only a non sequitur in language, but it's a non sequitur in economics. And it will fail. And it's going to fail as a result of greed. It's going to fail because the current managing partners of those organizations see all this value that they have created and they think they can capitalize it by taking it public and thereby taking a bunch off the table for themselves so that they could retire at some point. And what I told them was, it's not your money to take because it's going to disappear when you take it public. Fortress, I don't know where they're, it was embarrassing. The, the um, what do I want to say, the, the rush that black 
Blackstone had to get themselves public so that they could rake a bunch off the table under an agreement that made no sense at all, their public agreement explicitly denies to the shareholders of the public firm the managers of any fiduciary responsibility whatsoever to them, to those shareholders. My reaction was anybody that would buy this security has got to be crazy or naive. I don't know somebody around here knows better than I what it's selling for, but it's on the order of 20% of the price that went on the market. At one point it was lower than that. That didn't have to happen. And it happened because of greed and foolishness on the part of the people who did it and the similar kind of thing on the part of the people who were foolishly willing to pay 30 or $35 a share to buy that firm, buy a publicly held equity interest. They could pull it out. My prediction is they won't. And I'm happy about it because maybe we'll go back to the model that worked. Now that doesn't exactly answer the question you posed, but let me go back and that was were the LBO guys, that's what they called them in the early days, the leverage buyout guys, only interested in the money. What I saw in the, in the organizations where I got to film the board meetings and see them from the inside out was people who were amazingly devoted to those businesses. Now, I don't think they were all that way. You know, there, there was a flood of people just like what happened in hedge funds when it suddenly became clear you could make money doing that. And you know, then you get the really dumb guys coming in who are willing to palm themselves off as experts and people who put money with them got taken. So that happened in this market too. But the, but the ones that we studied and looked at, and they weren't selected on, the, on that basis, um, I found them remarkable as management teams. And if you compared them, in the right comparison, because these were conglomerates with a different structure. And if you compared them to the conglomerate structure and Harold Janine and others that ran firms that were like that, multi-divisional, these guys were a lot better. And they really did seem to understand that you had to be producing something, you had to be doing something that was bigger than purely the stock price if you're going to make a good, good return. So we'll see how it all plays out. I may be wrong. In the early part of it, I said this is going to be a big thing. The Harvard Business School, Harvard Business Review overreacted and said the public corporation was going to go away. That's dumb. Um, I think it's going to continue to shrink as the mistakes come to the top, and this new model that's evolved doesn't make any sense to me at all. And so will we go back to something that looked like, more like the old model? I'd like to see that, but I don't know. Uh, Ron, do you, want, do you have any thoughts on private equity you want to share with us? Or? With thought, the thought of time in mind, I'll stifle myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Anybody else? 
Okay. Uh, do we have any questions from the audience? Okay. Sophia? The one student I know. Please stand up. Speak loud. I'm, I'm sorry. We can't hear you very well. Can somebody give her a microphone? Is this? That would be great. Come on up here, Sophia. Yeah. Come over here to the corner. Yeah, these can actually be. Oh, there you go. Well, um, I have a question for um, Dr. Jensen. As you mentioned about um, the earning manipulation or earning guidance, and um, do you have any uh, suggestions regarding the government regulations that can um, possibly prevent these kind of things from happening, or um, you don't have any, like you don't think that's going to happen? Well, I'm very suspicious of government regulation. Um, these systems are so complicated, and it's so easy when you're trying to regulate them from the outside to screw them up even more. I'm much more, uh, I have much more confidence in that if the costs of what is being done is laid out, there'll be people will figure out themselves that, and get out of the herd instinct, and they'll behave in a different way, and I think that is happening. I'm seeing it. You know, Trevor is much more closely to this than I am, but, um, you know, I, <laughs> I said this this morning. You know, I, I was an accidental entrepreneur and started this SSRN, and my partner at the time, after we got going, decided to go off and do something else, and I'm stubborn and refused to give it up, so I ended up being an entrepreneur. This is a small firm, and it's all electronic. It's simple compared to the kinds of things we're talking about. And I am astounded how complicated it is and how interdependent things are. And you, you're making, you know, my, my empathy for people like Ron, who are dealing with way more complicated organizations. And it's so easy to make a change here and not understand what it's going to imply for over there. And you can get the place tied up in knots. And the notion that the federal government or the state governments can effectively, certainly at the federal level, regulate compensation without screwing the system up is crazy. I, the last thing I would recommend is that we get the federal government involved in regulating um, policies about earnings announcements. Reg FD was a pretty simple one. You know, you ought to stop giving away private information, stealing value from your shareholders and giving it to... That was a pretty simple one. But when you go down this other road, and if somebody asked me to write the regulations, I don't know what I'd write because I would be concerned about causing more damage than, than harm. I have a great faith that, not that people won't make mistakes, but when they're able to see the mistakes, they stop doing it. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do we have any other questions? There's one, there's one in the middle. We've got one right here. I'm uh, Cameron McCowan. I'm 
senior finance real estate double major here at Baylor. Um, I have a question actually for Mr. Jensen and Mr. Naples. Um, so to uh, Mr. Jensen, referring to your original conversation, uh, how can it surprise you that 80% of managers are willing to uh, change real operating decisions to make estimates um, when you're also an advocate of a significant portion of their compensation being tied to that stock? It almost seems like you're arguing against yourself um, there because they have that incentive, and yet um, you know, you're know you surprised when, when they're acting on it. Also, Mr. Naples, how do you believe uh, you should create systemic change within corporations, or do, or do you believe you should, uh, toward certainly keeping track of estimates internally, but not posting those estimates for the public, as you seem to be an advocate of? Thank you. A very short answer to your question. I think I didn't communicate it right. So what 80% of chief financial officers said is they're willing to destroy value in order to meet the analyst's projected earnings. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? Ron. <laughs> the... Uh I'm not sure where you were going with not keeping, I think said not keeping track inside the company. Of course, uh, if I understood your question correctly, uh, of course, inside the company, you, you want to have your arms around all kinds of moving parts to make sure that you're going where you want to go. It's just a matter of uh, the, the external information is a matter of do you want to uh, throw out a number or even a range of numbers on something as as a volatile as a possible earnings number that's affected by so many different things. When you're really seeking to establish uh, credibility with a, with a community that you're you're in charge here, that you've got your arms around running the company. So I, perhaps I misunderstood your question. I, I understand, uh, sir. I was actually asking, since you've chosen to take this route um, with your company and your practices, do you believe that you should create this systemic change within um, sort of corporations uh, as a whole or within the economy? I mean, you obviously think that this is uh, the right thing to do. And definitely we need to keep track internally, but not posting these externally. Do you feel like it's your responsibility at all to, um, to relate this to other CEOs, CFOs out there, and to see this change as a whole? Uh, I guess in short, the answer is no. Uh, uh, the U.S. economic system is a very complex animal. Pushing on one point inevitably has a, impacts on another point. And I think one of the things government always gets wrong is the unintended consequence. Like, you can act on these things in a vacuum. If you do something over here, you fix this problem, but then another problem occurs somewhere else. And, and the anticipation of what is that problem is often not folded into the solution very much. Uh, and I think uh, the magic of the system we have here is that the systems, re the systems respond to uh, the, uh, the market forces in a way that serves the purposes of each of the respondents to the market forces. I think to say one size fits all for all companies is the wrong thing. A responsible managements have to make responsible choices about what serves their purposes in achieving what they want to do. And for, for someone to, in, to uh, imply that there's a single answer on something like earnings guidance, even as strong as one may feel about his own view, is, uh, probably is not going to impress these other managers who are dealing with a different set of problems. Okay, I think we have time for one more question over here. Yes. Um, with Lehman Brothers being going to bankruptcy and now private equity firms starting to move into the, into the investment banking field like KKR rolling out, KKR capital markets, how do you see that affecting private equity, specifically with them underwriting their own IPOs now with Dollar General and some other ones going forward? Do you see this as a problem 
a conflict of interest in the private equity field and returning value to their investors? Well, I'm not familiar with all of the details of that, but it doesn't sound like a huge problem to me. Okay. If they can be more efficient at taking these things public and they have a lot of expertise in it, that may well work. And why pay huge fees to the investment banks if you don't have to? Okay. With that said, I want to thank all of you for coming this afternoon and for all your questions. And thank our panel.